Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm also a well-known speaker on topics like COSO 2013, SOX 404, quality assessment reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview is, and I'm very excited, Mike Jacka. Mike is a speaker trainer, author, and internal auditor who, upon retiring from a 30-year career, let me just put that out there again, that is a three with a zero, 30-year career in internal audit with Farmers Insurance. In order to become, so this is his new venture, the chief creative pilot for flying pig auditing, consulting, and training solutions, so FPACS. Mike is an award-winning columnist, best known for his work with Internal Auditor Magazine, including the blog From the Mind of Mike Jacka, and the magazine's lighter side pieces such as Alice in Audit Land, Auditing Songs for the Holidays, and Auditors Anonymous. He is the co-author of Business Process Mapping, uh, improving customer satisfaction now in its second edition. Uh, also, auditing social media, a governance and risk guide, and the marketing strategy, a risk and governance guide to building a brand. His latest book will be published, so check it out on uh, Amazon.com by the summer of 2014, which is a collection of humorous pieces entitled "Auditing Humor and Other Oxymorons." So, welcome, Mike. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are, and thank you for having me. Great. We are really excited to have you on our show today. And I wanted to get into um, something that I know you're very passionate about. Uh, I've been reviewing some of your blogs, and lately you've been doing a lot of work and talking about the need for creativity and innovation within internal audit. So um, how can an internal auditor be creative and innovative when implementing the new 2013 COSO framework, but more importantly, what about you know other internal auditors when, when COSO isn't the flavor of the year for an internal audit group? How can they be creative when it's not a one-time big project? It's a great question because <clears throat> what's going on with COSO right now, I think, really speaks to the challenge that auditors have. And with the new framework that came out, I see that being as both the positive about creativity and the negative about the way internal auditors approach subjects and approach new ideas. Let's talk about the negative side of it first. Um, one of the things I have found <clears throat> as I talk to internal auditors about COSO and ICF is this real sitting back wanting to hear the answers. And in particular, what I see is such a focus on Sarbanes-Oxley. I understand where that comes from. but it still speaks to a blinders approach. The ICF framework is about so much more than financial reporting, yet people are sitting waiting for the answers. And that's where the creativity and innovation comes in, recognizing that, yes, we have this specific need, but there is so much more out there. Auditors need to be creative in looking towards something new to do, looking for new approaches, the thing that, as I mentioned, they sit back, they're kind of waiting for answers, and this isn't the only area I've seen this with auditors, the part that somewhat frustrates me. I've done a lot of work on social media. People say, how do I audit it? I've done work on marketing. How do I audit it? I see people asking very specifically about 
how to perform audits. If you understand the risk, if you understand the area, you know how to do the audit. So back to COSO, I see people saying, what does the framework mean? How do I apply it? Well, these are people who understand Sarbanes-Oxley. These are experts. And the expectation, if there was creativity, if there was innovation, would be for them to say, this is how I did it. Here's the new one. This is how I would apply it. And move forward, not sitting back for answers. Now, that's kind of the negative side. What I will say, <clears throat> excuse me, is on the positive side, I have seen audit shops really approaching this the right way. I've had the opportunity, two or three groups, to do some of the training on the new framework. And what they're doing is they're saying, we see something new. We want to use this in our audit work. We want to be the ones to talk to our executives and talk to them about what's new out there. Because, again, the COSO framework is so much bigger. The change is – I've heard this line a million times. I'm sure a lot of people have heard this. The change is not revolutionary. It's evolutionary. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier to understand. But now auditors are – this sometimes gives auditors that chance to take a look, see what's new and different, see what's happening, and then apply it, look for the broader, and maybe almost a, an inflection point. We kind of knew ICF was out there. Here's a new one. Here's a chance to learn more about it. So the creativity comes in in how we look at this and how broadly we apply it. And, you know, you mentioned flavor of the month. That's the other side of this. It can be, it should be more than a flavor of the month. But if people just focus on what do I do with Sarbanes-Oxley, that's all it will be. It will be. It will bring us back to the good old days of tick and tie auditing. Creativity and innovation is about auditing, looking into the future and looking for something new. Right. Which There's some... <clears throat> There's some key examples that Volume 3 and 4 have. Uh, 3 is on the effectiveness and 4 is more like, the, I call it the Sox Bible for COSO. Right. And um, I, I recently did a class uh, um, at an IA chapter, 8 hours, and one of the examples, um, without giving them any answers, was an <laughs> ethics audit. Just Okay, so one of the, one of the uh, examples in the book is an ethics audit. And the question posed to the group is like, okay, so what's, give me the top three steps to do that, right? And they all looked around at each other like, oh, she's actually asking us to do an audit program. (laughs) (laughs) I said, this isn't really hard. I just want an outline. Like, you're coming to the audit committee. You're telling them you want an ethics audit. How are you going to do it? I mean, what are the top three steps? And I didn't even want all the steps required. I said, let's think about auditing, completeness and accuracy, Okay, what's the population? What are we looking for? Okay, great. So how do we get that done? And, and that's where the conversation started versus ticking and saying, so the, I've done a, a couple of different examples like that where I'm, I'm posing the question to them to say, okay, well, just walk me through just the basics, just the, just the shell of what we're trying to do. And you're right. It's just they, they would love for me as a lecturer just to give them the answer sheet <laughs> in a yeah. PowerPoint slide and add a little bit of humor so they just don't fall asleep through, through the entire eight hours. Well, that's exactly right. And that's in the training, everybody loves the control activities part when you look at the five components because we know it. We're auditors. Man, the minute you get into control environment, some people it's like a monkey watching a magic trick. They're just glazing over on it. And if I know when it, when it first came out, that's the one part I looked at and went, how the heck am I supposed to do that? I will say one of the things I love is the underlying principles. That gives it a lot better. But those principles can drive an audit, can drive an audit of a control environment. And the minute you start doing your audit work up at the control environment part, which ties into the ethics you were talking about, the minute you're adding so much more value, 
You're looking at the broad risks. You're looking at the broad problems. You've got findings and issues and concerns and just a conversation with the executive suite, with the C-suite, they may not have ever had before, and they'll look at you in a new light. Exactly. So what do you think is, is may be overlooked by internal auditors when they implement the new COSO framework? Is it, is it just that, that they're looking for answer, someone to give them the answers, and then they're overlooking some of these gems of value add? Or, I mean, wh- what's your thought? I think that is the big thing. And, again, we focus more on control activities. We understand it. Monitoring activities, we understand. There's some of these that, you know, clear back in 92 when it came out, and with a 30-year, I like the way you emphasize that, by the way, with a 30-year <laughs> career, I've watched a lot of those changes go on. And looking at it, information and communication and control environment, again, just kind of looking at them, not sure what they were. And those are the ones I think they're tougher to get a handle on. So we need to go and focus on them as auditors because that's where the value will be. I mean, I, I put those as the top two. Risk assessment, we're starting to get a grasp on how it means and what it means. But the other, the other one, monitoring activities, let's talk about that one real quick. The thing to recognize is it's not just monitoring controls, and this is the other thing I see a lot of auditors missing. It's not about monitoring controls. It's about monitoring the entire framework. So it's about monitoring the information. It's about monitoring the control environment. It's a broader picture than many people look at. That's the other opportunity often missed in the past. And this, again, the great part about this coming out, it's that chance for everybody to kind of reboot, make sure they understand the broad perspective, not just financial reporting. Exactly. And one thing in terms of the uh, the codification for these 17 principles, I show them principle nine on the risk assessment component and that word could, okay? So significant mm-hmm. changes that could impact the system of internal controls. So right there, I said, so, so what does that mean? And, and posing that question, they're starting to rethink and go, well, wait a minute. Is it everything that I know has happened in the past or is it also future looking that, I know it's in my playbook, mm-hmm. right, but the right. likelihood is so low. Okay, and then I say, so what's the monitoring mechanism? Because when we get to principles 16 and 17, and when I show them the quantity of the work in terms of po- points of focus, I think that's where the light bulb starts turning on. I say, look, out of all these principles, these 17 principles, look at, the, look at how, how many points of focus, right, these key characteristics are in just the monitoring piece. Right. Right. And is it no wonder it's here because, as you stated earlier, it's all of it. It's all the components you're supposed mm-hmm. to be looking at. Yeah. Not just one. Um, they, they they see it as an isolated item. They go to 16 and they're like, well, this is my socks thing. And as long as I'm doing socks every single year, check the box, I'm done. And, and getting them to look at the other items. And, and my way of explaining it is, in a very um, common social setting, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, Mike, um, going to a bar, sitting at the principal is a bar stool uh, seat, and those points of focus are legs of, a, of a, a, they're just the legs of the bar stool. So the question right. is, can, can you live with, if there's four points of focus to that bar stool seat, if two of them are missing, would you really sit down on that seat? Would you say you've covered that principle? And right. it resonates with a lot of people because they're just like, well, it's, it, you know, the guidance says I don't have to have everything. Yeah, okay, that's, that's true, but let's be real about the core concept of what those points, points of focus are supposed to guide us to think about. So well, I, and I'll tell you, an analogy we literally use when I was working with farmers insurance, this is back under the old COSO, we would break out, a Jenga, you know, the game Jenga with the blocks crossed. 
and we wrote on it the components and all the issues and now I could see doing it with the principles and our illustration with, to people was yeah you can pull this piece out it still stands you pull this out it stands at what point does it all fall down and what do you prepare for very much like your bar stool analogy Yes, I like my bar stool analogy because um, then I can actually have some, uh, you know, business expense reimbursement. Take everybody out and just say, "Well, let's see, let's see this in action." <laughs> well, there is always that approach, you know. And you mentioned about risk assessment; it's a great one because as you drill down, you find so many other things that are so valuable. The whole introduction of velocity as a risk assessment factor really broadens, and I've gone blank. It's velocity. It's velocity and um, duration, uh, that's the wrong word for it, I apologize, but, you know, broadening beyond impact and likelihood, that's another one that just makes people suddenly think deeper about risk, and I will tell you, this is the one thing, and I've heard a lot of people speak about it, you know, we're supposed, internal auditors are supposed to be doing controls, we're supposed to be doing governance, and we're supposed to be doing risk assessment, looking at those at any level of the entity we are looking at. We're great at controls. We're pretty good at governance. We don't do risk assessment well. We don't do the analysis of risk assessment, and that's why I really like that part of the COSO framework. It gives great direction so that I don't care what area I'm looking at, have they got a risk assessment process in place, entity level, accounts payable level, whatever level it is. Yeah, and I wanted, now that you've kind of mentioned that, I want to dovetail on uh, an item that I know our listeners are going to want to buy, which is, you know, I wanted to find out the inspiration of, of your the book that you wrote called um, The Marketing Strategy, A Risk and Governance Guide to Building a Brand. Well, it's funny you mentioned bars because I was – no, not really. Uh, actually, <laughs> I'm going to go back a little ways, and I'm going to talk first about the social yeah. media one. And this ties in with creativity, ties in with openness. My kids are big on Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con. They go annually. And I was like everybody else where I thought social media and Twitter and all that was just narcissistic navel-gazing. It wasn't doing much. Well, my daughter came back really ticked off. She said, ah, this happened, and I was following Warner Brothers, and they tweeted something, and I didn't get some swag. And at that point, I suddenly went, wait a minute. There is something here. There is more than that. There's a, there's a group. There's a, there's a click. There's a marketing. There's all that coming together. I happened to do some presentations on that and got together with Peter Scott, who I co-authored the social media book with. Mm-hmm. Why is he telling me that story? To tell you that then as we dug into it more and more, we realized that you know, there's a big piece of social, marketing, uh, social media that is the marketing and how marketing owns it. That got us to looking more and more about the risks there. And the realization, I think the last study, 11 to 15% of most, most organizations' costs are going into marketing. Mm-hmm. And yet I know I could speak from our group. We had probably done three audits of advertising in the last 10 years. I talked to other auditors. Nobody's looking at it. Right off the bat, that much money and internal auditors aren't looking at it. And then the next piece was they're really the ones in charge of the name. They're in charge of the brand, and they're in charge of the reputation. And mm-hmm. that's when Pete and I started working on it saying there is something there. There's a big piece there. And the more we dug into it, the recognition that it was an area that is not hard to audit, but because it's so much of the touchy-feely, it's so much of the market speak, mm-hmm. I think auditors are afraid to approach it. Well, that and, and also also legal services. I mean, it's like, oh, I yeah. can't touch them. It's, it's, it's this big, black, mysterious bubble, but going back to the marketing piece, I've told clients, you've got to get out of, compl- you, you've got to move away from compliance corner and mm-hmm. go into the sales side because you, if you have a top producer, let's say they are an outlier, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. in the, the top 2 or 5% okay, of, of their peer group within the department. 
all I, all I need to do is reverse engineer whatever this guy is doing or woman is mm-hmm. doing. It's, ve- it's actually very simple. And yep. one key aspect I have noticed, okay, this is just my professional experience, you know, what I've seen in the field is they're very persistent, right? So it's a lot of scripting, it's a lot of touch points, but it's persistence. And if you knock it out and you say, look, the reason why you have this outlier is they don't give up after touch point three or four. They go all the way down to touch point eight, nine, and ten, and this is how they do it. Now, if you get the rest of your mediocre sales team to do this and they cannot give up at touch point three, they got to keep going, touching this contact at least eight to 12 more times, you follow. It's a a whole different ballgame. And then the light bulb turns on, and I said, this this is where internal audit actually makes money and creates sustainability in sales because you just reverse engineered your top producer. And now you're creating an audit program that you can monitor and say, Knock, knock, knock. I'm coming every quarter. Where are mm-hmm. you on your touch points per contact? Everybody has a CRM tool. I, I don't want to, you know, I hate when they say, well, right. you know, our tool can't do that. Put it in Excel. I mean, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the point. The point is somebody's got to be making the dial. Somebody's got to be making those meetings, and they've got to be producing. And, and when you reverse engineer it, it could be t- up to touch point nine, eight, whatever, that's when you get that secret sauce. And I don't know why internal auditors are so intimidated. Some of my gut feeling is they feel like they can't add value or they're not going to get it or the salespeople are going to say, you're right. wasting my time. But then again, we bug everybody else, the accounts payable <laughs> department. We, you know, we, we annoy <clears throat> certain departments. So it's, to me, it's like, well, this is a no-brainer. And, and sales, salespeople, I'm not intimidated by salespeople. Well, and there's two points in there. You mentioned both of these. The first is, the one I talked about also, we're afraid of it. We don't know it. It's something we don't know. Somebody says they're talking about mission plans for marketing and we just get scared to death. That's easy to learn. But the other one ties into what else you said, which is that whole thing of what I will often hear in a lot of other areas. Well, somebody that's not internal audit's job. Somebody else should be doing it. The ubiquitous they, they know about it. Who's they? Who should be doing it? And more importantly, if nobody else is doing it, why shouldn't we? It's a whole idea that we can add value, that we can do it. We can do it within the context of a review. You go talk to the people and they say, who are you? Look, I don't know anything. I mean, I've said for years that internal auditors survive because of the Columbo approach. We just play stupid even if we do know what's going on. They explain it. We're taking their words back to them and saying, this is what worked. You talk about sales at Farmers Insurance. For years, we audited 10% of our 17,000 agents. We learned best practices, and our work was partially, you know, very localized control for two or three person operations. But within, within two years, we were able to put together a model of, by the way, we finished this, but here's how you can make it run better. And we were partnering with our sales department, who was in supporting what we said, and we were supporting what they said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a good partnership, and it actually um – I, you actually get more buy-in so when there's future projects, you know, the salespeople or that whole department says, you know what, it was a good working relationship. We all were, we saw a goal. We went, um, you know, with this, we went with the, this goal in mind and we, we traveled this journey. And so when mm-hmm. other things come up, it's kind of like, okay, this is a great partnership. It's not a, a combative relationship that you need to have with other departments. It's not like I gotcha, um, which is, I think, is the better approach. And you are always building relationships. 30 years ago, got to know a guy in our marketing department, our sales department, really well. He and I worked together out in the field. You know, we did these kind of things. Fifteen years later, I'm working in home office at a, at a manager level. He's the chief marketing officer. The relationship we've, we built 
whatever we told him he was there for, anything we suggested he was there for, and we had then an advocate sitting in the C-suite. Exactly. And that, it's always nice to have somebody there at the C-suite who can stroke a check, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wanted to shift gears in terms of skill sets. Um, what do you see in terms of lacking in, in skill sets of internal auditors today, or, or better yet, if you have a, a gap, a skill set gap, is this something that you know you're seeing people just hey throw throw up their hands and say let's outsource it to a subject matter expert and move on? Um, yeah, well, I mean the first thing I'll say is we've got a skill gap in creativity and innovation, but I think I've preached about that one enough already. Um, you know, when you get more specifically to skill sets. Um, I think it is the skill sets, the gaps I'm seeing people talk about that I'm seeing are not really the kind that can be outsourced. Uh, I see, well, it's kind of a challenge. For example, so many people want to know about communication. So many people want to th know about critical thinking. So many people want to know very specifically about report writing. How do I get skilled at this? How do I bring my people up? How do I get those? What I find is so often they're trying to solve the wrong problem, and I'm going to use report writing as an example done a lot of training on report writing. I've had lots of questions come up about report writing, and invariably I find it is not a report writing problem. It is a basic audit skills problem. We're not reporting the true findings. We're not, finding, we're not reporting the true root cause. Why? Because you didn't do it in the audit. You didn't think about what the objective of the audit was at the outset. So I think a lot of the skill set breaks that people have aren't skill sets. They're just reinforcing the need for basic training and basic ideas that go on. Um, I mentioned the uh, – well, let's talk about outsourcing very quickly because I have seen companies try and outsource report writing. And that has been very interesting. I saw one group that brought in somebody that specifically review for grammar and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That wound up in delaying their reports an extra two months. That wasn't the issue. But I do know another group who had three auditors assigned to do nothing but to write the reports. Maybe not outsourcing, but at least specializing. I'm not sure what specializing means, but specializing. <laughs> You're creating new words here, Mike. <laughs> That's right. That's the way I work best. But that they found worked, and it was actually streamlined. It had its own issues. You know, there will always be specialized areas within an operation, and if you're not looking at them enough, you're always going to have to outsource them. In farmer's insurance, our actuaries do all these magic numbers, and any time we needed to look at it, we had to bring in experts for it. Um, I have seen audit shops in do, suddenly getting involved in construction audits. I have seen ones that do it on their own. I have seen ones that say, we haven't got the skills. We've got to bring some expertise in. And it has worked for, you know, some have worked, some haven't. Depends on the skill set. I've always said that if you know how to do internal audit, you can audit anything because, again, it's just asking the questions and digging in and finding out. But there's no doubt more specialization and more understanding of it will help you find key things. All the way back to social media, I think a lot of people initially, and marketing works this way too, a lot of people initially think if I'm going to look at that, I'm going to have to outsource it. It's just an area I don't know. No, it's not that tough to catch up on. It's not that tough to find. And that gets to also developing the auditors, developing people, developing their understanding. I'm a firm believer in people need to take control and learn how to do these kind of things and understand them rather than outsourcing because you will not develop the more you outsource. You've got a bad time, obviously, but yes. And I've noticed in some internal audit groups, um, when they do outsource, they, they naturally gravitate towards IT, right? They say technology is, is changing way too fast, um, and IT auditors are very expensive, and then they leave after so many years, and um, mm -hmm. 
the retention rate isn't that great, so let me just outsource it, right? And I, I keep thinking, it's, it's, it's really not that complicated. We had a, a scenario with a client where they actually built their own revenue recognition system. I need to know the price. I need to know the completeness, the changes, et cetera. I mean, all your basic mm-hmm. audit skills that I would do on procure to pay I, I, I'm looking at the same bubble of items, you know, for completeness, accuracy, <laughs> and timeliness. Yeah. So right. it doesn't matter that you created your own system. I'm asking the right questions to the right IT people that developed it and getting to objective evidence to support mm-hmm. the conclusion of the report. I mean, that's, that's the nature of it. And then I've, I've noticed this report writing issue as well because <clears throat> most people – forget sometimes the audience, and then they also forget about what was the core objective. Like you had this audit program in the beginning because planning was done months and months and months Mm -hmm. and months ago, and they forgot about that planning document, right, because things might have been tweaked and then altered and so forth, and it's like, well, wait a minute, what was the original plan to begin with? It can be tweeted, uh, tweaked a little bit, and and tweeted if you (laughs) do that on social media, (laughs) tweet your audit program. But the yeah. point is, is that they, they kind of forget about the storyline, right, from the planning and to, to, to the middle piece of the story and then, and then the final conclusion to say, okay, well, now what happened? Because we've had scenarios where we're helping write a major report. Um, we, we did it for um, Build LACCD. It's a $6 billion bond fund. And we, we started down a path, and then we had to switch gears because the audit findings were, were telling us to go somewhere else, and then we needed to revamp certain things. And so mm-hmm. the final report, we had to make that, communication clear, right? Tell somebody the story and the reason why. What was the why factor of having to change it? But it's, it's more of an art form rather than just a tick and tie. So I, I, I don't know how people can really outsource report writing when you need to be part of the whole storyline from beginning to end. And then just to give results of this, these were my audit findings and then getting somebody to write the report, I, I just, you're not really giving a lot of color to the main objectives. I, I think that's a, a bad um, idea. Yeah. Well, and as I say, this were people that were internal auditors. They, were, they obviously had a certain skill set. They were used to how it worked. That was the challenge they were exactly facing, to make sure that they understood the full story. What I will say is that, in a way, it forced the auditors to make sure they understood and recognized how it was all going to impact the report writing process at the end. Because I think, again, that's what we forget. We're busy mm-hmm. doing audit work, and we forget – the, what, audit, what an audit report does is provide such a fantastic structure for us to understand the work we did and then communicate it. Exactly. exactly. Now, one thing, one thing I will throw in, the other one that pops up a lot, and I, you know, this is the idea of the criteria. And I think very often people forget that part of it. Well, I'm testing against something, and that's where if you don't know an area, it doesn't hurt. All you're doing when you're talking to them is establishing that basic criteria. What am I going to test against? I may not know what a formal is or anything else, but I know that if 6% of the formals aren't hitting the 20% of the APECA billers, then I've got something to test against. Right. Exactly. You, you know some type of benchmark or at least some, some, uh, yeah. um, some place to go to. Now, I wanted to, to kind of get into some personal stuff with you. Um, I, I have a story of how I got into internal auditing, and I'm sure you do too. So I wanted our listeners to kind of – get a sense of how did you become an internal audit professional and, and more importantly, um, stay in this profession for so long. 30 years is a long time, Mike. Yep, I know. Well, um, I believe that in a former life I was a horrible person, and so, no, not really. <laughs> Actually, um, I had an ex-father-in-law. I, I, I'm going to give you the long story. 
I played in bands to put myself through college two different times. I got an archaeology degree. Take it from me. There's no money in archaeology. So I come back, and it's time to go back in and find something real. And my ex-father-in-law says, hey, the way to make money is in accounting. Now, he was wrong, don't get, but nonetheless, I went into accounting and, and learned I enjoyed it. So I actually went to work at Farmers Insurance, and Farmers Insurance is, is a, was a great place to work. I was not the only story about people who lasted 30 years. Internal auditors have been there for a while. Great environment. Um, but I went into accounting. Mm-hmm. And for six months, I did the same thing six times in a row, and I was bored to tears. I saw the auditors over there having way too much fun. They were sitting behind us, and I joined them. Well, what it offered me, what I found, just stumbled into such a great atmosphere um, to learn about an organization. I've always said the only people who know what's going on in a company are the internal auditors and the CEO, and I'm not sure about the CEO because we get that broad picture of operations. Well, on top of that, I was incredibly lucky. You ask how did I last 30 years. Part of it was in farmer's environment. Part of it was the internal audit environment, and I worked for a number of managers, directors, chief audit executives who allowed me to be as creative and innovative as I wanted to be. And by the way, if they happen to be listening, yes, that's Ken, that's James, that's Mark, that's Sue, that's Dave. Had to do a quick shout-out to them. These are the kind of people that helped shape me and allow me to do what I wanted. But that meant I got to do a lot of different things. You talk today about, you know, Generation X, Y, Z, whatever we're into, millennials, how they're going to have 15 different careers as they grow up. I basically had that with internal audit. I did internal audit work. I was in charge of fraud for a while. I did develop training for a while. The last stint I had, I was doing all the risk assessment and planning and scheduling and review of all the work we did in marketing and sales. So, one, they gave me the opportunity to jump around and, you know, look for new things, but they gave me that opportunity to really look for new things, to innovate. Sometimes they didn't know what I was doing. I, had, I went to one, a, a coworker and I went to uh, one of our directors one time. We said, look, this is what we want to do. And we laid out this whole idea about brainstorming throughout all our operations. And it gave us this look like, oh, my gosh, there they go again. But he said, I don't really know what you're trying to accomplish, but mm-hmm. go do it because I have confidence in you. I heard a great line, and that, obviously this is something that he believed in. Creativity is like a joke. You don't understand it till the end. If you have enough, success, you have enough successes with it or really spectacular failures, that gives you the chance. Right. So how do I last 30 years? It's fun. It's always new. The organization's always evolving, so you're always learning so, new stuff. And there's so many opportunities. I mean, that's, that's how I wound up making it that long and doing it that long. It's very much, very much developing what it was I wanted to do and want to be. And that's, that's the thing. Anybody who worked for me, I always told them, look, that's, that's your challenge. You've got to figure out what it is. You've got to find the opportunities. I can't be in charge of your development. I'm more than happy to help you. But you've got to find what it is that wakes you up at night in the morning and makes you excited. And then so we'll work we- together to get that. When, when I was at Ernst & Young, um, there was a, a huge polling and survey being done uh, throughout the organization. And one of the common findings um, that they found, uh, this was Gallup uh, poll that did it, and they found that um, people who lasted longer, uh, one of the criteria was not the money that they were getting paid. It wasn't the hours or the flexibility of the profession. It was... Um, did they feel like they had a best friend at work? 
right? Mm-hmm. They feel like they had that. And the description of that best friend was somebody that was, you know, supportive, um, you know, constantly pushing them to be uh, working at the optimum level, that kind of best friend, not the best friend that, hey, let's go have a drink afterwards. It was mm-hmm. more of, hey, I'm here. Um, this is a colleague that is actually more than just a work buddy. This is somebody who really has the best interests of me and my growth potential here at the firm. And, and that was the secret. It comes down to people. And, and, a, and a lot less about did we give them the, the latest laptops to use or the mm-hmm. software training. It was about the environment and the people and, and encouraging people to do their best every single day when they showed up at work. So um, it, it, it's very – I kind of suspected that was going to fall in line for, for you to stay in one organization for 30 years. It was definitely yeah. – it sounds like the people. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a fantastic point. I think back when I first um, made the move to home office – Without having to move to L.A., I've lived in Phoenix my whole life. That's another story entirely. But anyway, the gentleman who came in at the same time I did, he is somebody I can see was very much that way. This is clear back when Tom Peters was first coming out with his information. You know, a lot of changes going on. He introduced me to so much of that. He became that person that I could bounce those ideas off of. I mean, just led me to a whole new level. And that was so instrumental in my becoming more than a halfway decent internal auditor, but becoming broader than that and being able to accept the new and different ideas that that were starting to flourish at that point. Yeah, no, I think it's a great story. Well, um, Mike, uh, I want to say thank you so much for being on our program today. And I know our listeners are going to get a ton of value. And they can also look for on Amazon.com your books um, that you've published or, co- or co- co-authored, um, Business Process Mapping, Improving Customer Satisfaction, and then Auditing Social Media, a Governance and Risk Guide, and also the Marketing Strategy, a Risk and Governance um, Guide to Building a Brand, and then not to mention your up-and-coming summer book this uh, year in 2014, Auditing Humor and Other Oxymorons. So again, thanks, Mike, for being on our program. Thank you so much for the time, Sonia.